0: Hey, and welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do, where I try very hard to bring you interviews with interesting people doing very cool things and building their businesses, but across all industry lines. And today I have with me a partner in the Los Angeles office of the law firm of D.L.A. Piper. Linda Smith represents clients in high stakes or bet the company level and complex litigation across a variety of industry lines. Now, those of you who listen to the show know that I have a special interest in attorneys because I spent four years working inside two of the biggest law firms in America, what they call the Amlaw 100, which is the 100 largest firms. As the marketing director about a decade ago, but I still continue to work one on one coaching lawyers and working with teams of lawyers in different firms about their business development, their networking, their brand, and their strategy. Because I believe that lawyers are really entrepreneurs. And even if they're in a big firm, they're kind of a solopreneur because at the end of the day, you're tracked inside your law firm based on the business that you bring in. You sort of eat what you kill. So I am a big fan of lawyers and I'm a big fan of lawyers that are entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurial. And when I was introduced to Linda Smith, I got really, really excited because she just also, after a long career in this high powered legal world, just changed law firms five months ago. So we talk on this show a lot about relaunching and reinventing, and Linda's in the middle of restarting her practice with a new firm. And in my research, And my study about Linda before we had this conversation, I ran across an article where corporate board member magazine named Linda the meanest woman alive. Now, how cool is that, that we have the meanest woman alive right here on the show, and it's the first time she's ever done a podcast interview, and I told her it's okay, because I'm the nicest guy alive, so we're going to get along absolutely great. Linda, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. Actually, I get along better with people who are mean, because then (laughs) I can ramp up my game. Um, (laughs) But... um, Um, maybe I should start by telling you how I got that name. Yeah, why don't we Um,
0: start with the meanest woman alive? How did that happen? Okay,
1: Um, well, it's actually fabulous because I really stand about five feet two on a good day. And um, I am uh, blonde and busty. And when I was younger, I had big hair. When I was younger, I had sort of the Farrah Fawcett look. And so I had to deal with all the blonde jokes and everything else. And I am actually a very professional, and I ha- so I had to be very smart and very agile um, because when I got to the law firm, I started out um, at O'Melveny and Myers. I spent 37 years there before this challenging new transfer. When I got to the law firm, I was, um, young and um, pretty sexy for, you know, for a lawyer. <laughs> and I had to be, and it was all men. And I can't tell you how many times when I walked into either a courtroom or to take a deposition with my briefcase and was asked if I was the court reporter. I've had people call me honey. And um, asked me to bring the coffee. I mean, I have all the old stories. And one of the problems is, and we can get to this later if anybody's interested, is that it actually has changed for the better, but it's not completely there yet. It's still mostly a man's world. So I had that to deal with. And the way I operate is I think I'm very professional and fair and calm and I will deal with other people and I'm I'm a nice person. My friends think I'm a nice person. But if um if the other side in my cases um begins to misrepresent the facts or the law or starts attacking my client in a in a personal or unprofessional way, then watch out because <laughs> I will go after them hammer and tong. And that is, um one of the reasons I got the, the moniker of the meanest woman alive. But it was actually given to me by my clients, not the other side. Because what I would do is in preparing them for either deposition or for trial, I would pretend I was the other side and take their deposition or go through their trial testimony and be incredibly tough on them. And not, and I knew we're all the, you know, holes were and all the problems were, and I would ask them questions, and they would have a very difficult time, and um, once they were through with my training, they found that their actual testimony on the stand or in the deposition was so much easier than anything I had put them through, so my own clients, PricewaterhouseCoopers and Humana and Credit Suisse First Boston and, um, you know, everybody else started calling me the meanest woman alive. And now that has stuck with me. And in fact, when we were um, talking to the chairman and CEO of Advanced Micro Devices, AMD, who was, who then hired us for the largest private antitrust case ever brought. In the United States, the world, or the universe, <laughs> um, you know, he—I mentioned something about the meanest woman alive, and he was really excited and asked me to send him the article, and he just loved it. <laughs> I think they loved the fact that um what, what 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 they told all the salespeople who they got together at the first meeting, the executive team, is, okay, this is Linda Smith, she's the meanest woman alive. If you cooperate with her and follow her directions and provide her with the information that she asks for, when it gets to trial or your deposition, she will protect you and rip the other side's heart out. But if you don't, she'll let them rip your heart out. <laughs> um, so <laughs> um, it's sort of violent metaphors, I know. But um, so now, you know, I, my clients want to feel like they are protected and that you know if it's fa- if it's a fair question it's a fair question but if it isn't a fair question they don't get away with anything with me
0: so i you know having worked closely with lawyers i know that when you've got bet the litigation or bet the company litigation coming down you definitely want someone you know as your attorney and on your team who has your back so that's i th- we talk a lot on the show and with people who i work with about what is your brand and you have to have a brand that's memorable you can't just be when you're out and about you can't just say hi i'm linda i'm a lawyer because that makes people go like oh golly gee, another lawyer, you know, so having something that's memorable, I think works for you on lots of levels.
1: Yes, I think it does, too. Although um, I have to say that when I when you asked me to be on the show, I was thinking that I had and I do have a brand. I think my brand is several things. It is being a woman litigator because and with a national reputation, because there are probably and I've spoken to other people to ask them their opinion. Maybe less than two hands worth of nationally known women litigators for large company cases, um, and so that's one of my brands, and then the other is the meanest woman alive but i and, you know obviously this is coupled with you can be as mean as you want or as female as you want, or anything else, but you better your work better be brilliant and that's one of the things I know that you've spoken about. Um, the problem is with branding is that in my profession as in most being brilliant or doing great work and getting great results is a given. My clients are paying huge amounts of money. They expect me and my team to be on call 24/7 and they expect brilliance. That's a given. There's lots of those lawyers out there. So how are they going to choose you? If it's a relationship that I've had in the past, then it's all about, you know, they have to I, you know, people who like you, know you, trust you and you've gotten good results for, it, we'll come back. But if they don't know you, then the branding helps, having the reputation and having having a hook, I guess I would call it. The other thing I was thinking, and I, was, I have all these great stories of these big cases. I did the Exxon Valdez spill and the BCCI collapse, and I deposed Michael Dell in the AMD case, and I Went head to head with Doctor Phil, who was our jury consultant <laughs> in a in a tr- in a case for the you know eight major inter- entertainment studios, and I was representing the Hollywood Foreign Press in the Golden Globes case, and I have all these great war stories. And if you ask a litigator, all they'll do is start telling you lawyer stories. But as you referenced at the beginning, before the entrepreneurs who are listening to this decide that while well, I may have some cool stories to tell, my career doesn't apply to their situation. I can assure them that every nationally known litigator is an entrepreneur. No matter what you are with a large law firm, you still only eat what you kill. If you don't bring in business, your run is over. I'm a rainmaker, and if I make rain, great. If I don't, I'm out. The same dynamic applies to my relationships, contacts, business development as to any entrepreneur. Um, and that is because corporations hire people, not law firms. And surprisingly enough, because I, n- I know people are thinking this isn't the case, but it's just a person. It's the general counsel or the CEO chooses legal counsel based on who they know, like, and trust. And uh, the one added dimension is we have to win or otherwise obtain a f- you know otherwise favorably resolve their cases. But just like in any other relationship, personal relationships are everything.
0: Well, I agree, and it's interesting to hear you talk because this is the exact stuff that I train lawyers and other business professionals about business development. So how did you early on – because clearly to reach the level that you've reached in your career, you've been doing this for a long time. You don't get to wake up one day and say, now I'm going to be an entrepreneurial lawyer and be at the top of the heap with a national reputation in about 45 minutes. So what was it early on that led you to be entrepreneurial in your career,
1: well, um, I think I, I, I had the drive and the passion, which I know a lot of entrepreneurs do. So that maybe isn't enough to answer the question. Um, and um, I also have some some suggestions um, about um, making sure you have. You know, I have a lot of suggestions. Maybe we should get to that when we get to what advice do I have for people in general. Um, you know, find yourself a mentor. Um, you know speak up when you have something to say. Um but I wanted to be I wanted to be a top litigator and I started at the bottom at a very competitive firm where you know most people are not there by the time partnership announcements are made. And um as I said I I'm a I'm a little blonde girl <laughs> and now a woman I've heard every blonde joke in the world. Um, <laughs> so I was very smart and determined to run the gauntlet and make it. And I tell a story. I, I had to give a speech before all the state um, federal, all the state judges for the court of appeals who have to run for re-election in California. And so I brought with me, and I, it's such a great visual. I wish I could show people, but I brought with me um, a shoe. And it was a ginormous shoe it's um i think it's a size 24 25 but it looks (laughs) like the kind of shoe that maybe in the olden days would be hung outside the shop if it was a cobbler or a shoemaker (laughs) you know to indicate their craft because of course no one would ever really wear it but the shoe is legendary it belonged to shaquille o'neal who used to be an la laker and then he was with the miami heat and in la um he you know He helped win the NBA championship three times. And so I hold up the shoe, and I say to people, my ownership of this shoe is something of an absurdity. I can't put both my feet in it. I can put both my feet in it and have extra room. It's way too big. I can't perform in it. It wasn't designed with me in mind. And the idea of filling the shoe is both daunting and absolutely ridiculous. So what I did is I fashioned my own shoe. Not overnight, not even in a year, but over time. And I built one that fits, is designed for me, by me, and that I can form, perform in just fine. Um, in that shoe, I can and have walked into the board of directors meetings or the chairman's office at IBM, Price Coopers, HCA, Seagrams, AMD, Time Warner, and Exxon to give my strategic advice on how to handle litigation with billions of dollars at stake. And my point is, I didn't really have a model. And so I had to develop my own style. My my mentor, who was the head of the litigation department for many, many years, his name was Bill Vaughn, and he was about 6'5" had a deep, booming voice that sounded like um, James Little Jones, maybe a little bit Darth Vader-ish, but a very wonderful voice. And here am I, coming up to, you know, maybe the middle of his chest with my voice, which is not a deep, booming voice. And he was my mentor. So I followed, you know, I learned from him many, many important things about how to practice law and how to be trustworthy and how to you know, how to do the, do everything in the right way. But in terms of style, I had to just make it up. And I think it was just a question of building my own shoe, building my own, my own model, and having determination and grit. Um, and also, you know, I think, I don't know how to describe this exactly, but being politically savvy, um, you know, you have to, maybe that sounds Machiavellian, and it probably is, but you know you have to um, understand the political situation in whatever organization you're in, whether it's big or small or you're in the market, you know even if it's even if you're by yourself. understand what's going on and make sure that you you know, uh, react appropriately.
0: So that brings me to, um, I don't to know an, if
1: that's clear enough.
0: But. No, that makes total sense. But you bring up sort of another thing when you talk about having no role models, you really had to build your own way. And, and your mentor was a six foot five booming guy and you're a little petite blonde. That brings me to an interesting thing. Cause I know the legal business and while half of the people who go to law school are women, it's a small percentage who become partners in the large firms. So what has it been like building this career as a woman, in really a male-dominated field? Because I think that relates to people in all industries, or many industries.
1: Well, you know, the thing is, I'm going to say the most prosaic thing in the world. You have to be choices smart. You really do. And you have to have a lot of political, I, I guess I'm calling it political savvy, but it's just sort of, you can't just be smart. You have to be very smart, and then you have to, you know, I had to walk a really fine line between, because I also refused Back in those days, and, you know, there was this, all women, when I went to interviewing law firms, wore blouses with these big bows in the front that they would tie. <laughs> and I thought they were hideous and I wouldn't wear them. So I wore appropriate clothes. I didn't come to work dressed, you know, sex. I wore suits. I wore, you know, blouses, et cetera. I didn't look like other other women, and I have a big personality, which I never really tried to quash <laughs> um and um i just um i you know I just forged forward, and um I had to be smarter than the men. I also have stories which now seem hilarious, but at the time weren't of clients you know um asking me to be their mistress and hitting on me and all sorts of other things like that, and you have you just have to handle it. it was very challenging um but once. Well, two things happen. One, um, I establish myself. And once your clients know you're really good and you have their best interests at heart and you're going to fight for them and you're going to be loyal to them and you're going to be responsive to them and you're going to listen to them, um, even if you then implement things that are a little bit different, um, they will... That was it. Then you're you're in. Um, And so, for example... PricewaterhouseCoopers I think used me for the course of 30 years um uh, for they it was not one case after another but they continued to have very very big cases you know 30 billion was one of them it was that was the case with the collapse of the Bank of Credit and Commerce which was also known as the Bank of Crooks and Criminals <laughs> and I represented the UK Pricewaterhouse firm and um you know it was um i mean they kept coming back for major major cases and i had i had proven myself to them so one is one is having a track record and proving yourself and then the other if it's a new client they can see the, the track record they can even talk to your other clients and they also know you by your reputation so once you get there or once you work yourself up to there you can stay there it also probably helped that um as i got older i got older <laughs> so <laughs> i was i was um you know less um less sexy and you know i still i still have a big personality and i still have big blonde hair and everything like that but i'm you know but it's less of a um I'm now someone's mother, and you know <laughs> <laughs> it just it just becomes sort of a different thing, but I think the key is um no matter what you're dealing with is you have to expect that you're going to be discriminated against, and I'm not just saying women, I'm talking about people of color, I'm talking about just basically anyone who isn't um doesn't fit exactly the preconceptions of an organization because it tends to be um guys like guys and they like guys who go golfing with them and play poker with them and i mean it's just it even to this day there some guys are just more comfortable with guys who remind them of the sun they either have or wish they had and um you just have to get by that you have to impress them with your abilities and your sense of humor and you know your work ethic and And uh, just keep going.
0: So, Linda, in 2015, do you think it's gotten easier for young women who are entering the the career market or the legal market?
1: I think it's easier. You know, as you know, I don't know what the statistic is. I don't know if it's six out of ten or four out of ten. But the top of law school classes are now tending to be um, disproportionately women. Yes. And um, I think that they're being hired into law firms. Um the question is well first of all as you know life, law firms um law firm en- enrollment is exceeding the amount of jobs available right now so that's a problem for everyone but in addition i think i think women get into law firms then i think if they they can rise to a certain level i still believe that there's a glass ceiling and I'm I'm very sorry to say that I think that women can get into somewhat positions of leadership. But for example, I'm pretty outspoken, and I have been um, I have been called um, uh, opinionated and aggressive, and um, uh, which sort of amounts, in my mind, to which is not a word anybody would use uppity, even as a senior partner. And you would never say that about a man a man would a man who's opinionated um, and aggressive is a litigator is doing exactly what he's supposed to do huh. so I think there still is there still remains. Some blockages. I don't think it's an equal playing field, but I think it's it is much better. I mean, I have been. This is my 38th year in the business. It is much better.
0: So, after 38 years as a lawyer, what do you love about the life you've created?
1: Ah, here's what I love. (laughs) I call one of my practice that I practice bathtub law.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What's bathtub law? I
1: know that sounds very bizarre, but. My cases are always about different fact situations and often different industries. And so what I do is, like, AMD Intel was about microprocessors. So I learned everything about microprocessors and how the computer industry works and how pricing is set and rebates are given. And I learned the case law about single-firm dominance and exclusive dealing, and I filled the bathtub up to the very top, and I knew everything about that industry and my witnesses and how everything worked. And then when I'm go ready to go to the next case, I pull the plug, It's gone. (laughs) And then the (laughs) next case I had was completely different. I represented the Hollywood Foreign Press um, in the fight over who owns the rights to the Golden Globes award program. So I filled the bathtub up again with the history of the Hollywood Foreign Press and the Golden Globes. Um, customs and practice in in networks and how they contract for award shows, their uh, relationship with Dick Clark's former production company, all the subtleties of contract law in the entertainment industry, which has has all its own unique particularities, and filled it up again. And then when that was done, I pulled the plug. So what I love what I love about the way I get to practice. Is that, and I think even if you have a, a specialty, it may be the same because every case is very different. But at least for me, every case—I mean, Exxon oil spill—I learned all about. I had—I was in charge of showing that the sound, the that um, the heavily oiled portions of uh, Prince William Sound had healed, and so I I I had a biologist and a geologist, and I learned everything about oil and. And, um, intertidal critters. And <laughs> I wanted my, my, um, my toxicology expert to drink oil because I thought that would be very good for the jury, but for some <laughs> reason he refused to do that. But, and then I, so I learned all about oil and then not only oil skills, but, you know, about Alaska and the storms and the natural cleansing and the da, da da da. And so, and I filled all up with that and then I pulled the plug on that. So it's a very exciting way to live your life.
0: Well, I can relate to that because as a professional speaker and master of ceremonies, I speak in all different types of industries. I do a lot of work with like partner meetings for law firms, but I also you know software companies hire me and uh the National Association of Truck Stop Owners has hired me and sort of everything out there that you can imagine all these really cool industries and it's the same thing i have to learn just enough about the industries to be able to speak to their audience and then the next week i'm you know with some lawyers and then i'm with bankers and then i'm with construction uh, industry people and
1: exactly and it it you know it makes it fun it to, does to have, you know it's first of all challenging and also you know, you learn a, a whole new thing. I actually, when you said trucking, I did a case early on for the, for the, in the trucking industry, and all of my co-counsel. So again, my the 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 partner, because I was the second year or something. The partner was this um, really really smart, but sort of a southern good old boy guy. Uh, very bright and terrific. But he sends me out to all these meetings and, I, and depositions and all the other counsel in the case representing the other trucking companies are all Southern good old boys. And they're looking at me like, you know, what the blank <laughs> when they see me because they're like, who's this? Of course, I, you know, eventually I ended up running the whole thing, but I mean, it was, it was, and I learned all about the trucking industry. And for years afterwards, whenever I saw my clients, you know, my ex-client, because we were done with the case trucks, I would always pay attention. So it, it's just funny. It's, um, It makes life very interesting.
0: So you've built this powerful life and very entrepreneurial inside the two law firms that you've worked for. But is there anything about the entrepreneurial side of the life of of sort of eating what you kill and being aggressive? That you don't like? Are there ever any days you think you know I could have been in-house counsel for some little company?
1: Actually, that or I think because I I live in uh, in Los Angeles. I I look at the women who lunch in Beverly Hills and say I could be doing that instead of working.
0: <laughs> That's a great job um, if you can get it. I think. think
1: I would be very unhappy with, but um, but nonetheless, yes. Um, I you know I think I actually when I. Um, I have basically not really had to look for cases as soon as one big case ends I seem to within a very short time have another very big case and they take years so that or you know sometimes decades so that I haven't had that feeling but I do think um the pressure of being you know you eat what you kill and if you don't kill you don't eat that pressure is 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 incessant and there's that concern that you have, that once, and you know, it's it's all on you. No one's handing you everything. I th- I think maybe in the old days, um, if you were with a big law firm, they had what they call institutional clients who would always use the firm. But not in today's cutthroat, competitive market. Even at the highest levels, you have to you have to bring in the business, and you have to keep the business. And it's a it's a huge um, it's a huge amount of stress and it's a it's a challenge you can look at it as a challenge or you can look at it as a real pain but um it's definitely it's definitely a lot of pressure,
0: but I think this is great advice for the listeners because sometimes people think, "Well, she's this powerful lawyer. How does she relate to me as a solopreneur, as a consultant, or you know, as as me as a speaker? How you know, how does that matter? Well, I have the same pressures. At the end of the day, if someone's not hiring me, I'm not feeding the kids that day. I mean, obviously, I would feed the kids, but <laughs> metaphorically, right, but I, I don't. Want, I don't want to start getting letters going. What you're not feeding your right, daughters? You don't feed your daughters. <laughs> <laughs> okay. they they're very well fed, but uh, the pressure is there and when you leave sort of corporate america and go off on your own as a consultant or starting some sort of a of a company yourself sometimes your employees are getting paid and the ceo's not that constant you know, pressure, even if the money's coming in of, ooh, what if it dries up tomorrow? I think we all right. relate to everybody who has that entrepreneurial spirit, whether they're inside an organization or whether they're out on their own. I think we all feel that pressure. So I think it's great coming from someone, you know, at the very top of big law that you feel that pressure, too.
1: Yes. And the thing is, it's actually, I think it's I you know, I'll say it's just the same And someone who's an entrepreneur starting out or a solopreneur will roll their eyes and say, yeah, sure. Um, because I do have behind me, and I, I was going to mention this, um, just because I feel like I need to give a shout out. Um, I have to bring in the business; it's on my head. I'm the rainmaker. I have to. It's it's all me. But one of the keys to being successful in the kind of work I do is having an amazing team. And I've um, I I have a few secrets for having a really great team. I don't know if this is the, the time or the place to tell you, but you know, you you really are only as good as, you can't do it alone, especially these really big cases. And sometimes my team is five people, 10, 20, 50. And um, I guess I would, if you want, I'll tell you why I think it works. Or, or we can move on to something
0: else. No, that's exactly, we're ready to get into the okay, part where well, I, the I ask about is, advice. So
1: what I feel like is what I do with my teams is I make it a collaboration. And I think You know, I'm trying, I have been trying to decide in my own mind whether this is a trait of a woman or this is just a trait of someone, a different trait of someone who handles business in a certain way. But we have team meetings once a week. Everybody gets to talk. Doesn't matter how junior you are, you are. I make the final decisions. Everyone understands that, but everybody has input. And a lot of firms, when there's a big case, Just the partners email each other developments. I email the team on everything, basically everything. Sometimes they get tired of all my emails. But (laughs) I want to make everyone be in the loop because I think if people feel a sense of ownership, if they feel like they really are part of the team and it's our case together and they're not just working for the partner or the partners on it, it makes all the difference in the world. And um, so I try to assemble the best people I can, and then I just, I I give them lots of responsibility, and I um, listen to what they have to say. And I think that is the best way to grow people into leaders and also to have the best support you possibly can. And it's fantastic.
0: So what other advice do you have for people who want to, maybe they're inside a company and they want to grow an internal brand and an internal business, or maybe they want to launch off on their own and, and start something new, whether they're a lawyer or not? What, what advice do you, you know, have?
1: The problem I have is that I, you know, I feel like my advice is absolutely true, but prosaic. You need to stand out. You need to distinguish yourself. Whether we call it your brand or your chief selling point, you have to rise above the crowd. Um, Excellent work or a creative idea is not enough. It should be. Perhaps it should be, but that's not today's world. So, for example, in my world, legal excellence, as I said before, is not enough. My clients expect that.
0: That's just the ticket into the game. That's
1: that's the entry ticket. It doesn't get you anywhere. I agree. Um, and so you need a hook, you need it you can't, a hook sounds sort of hokey, but you need a brand, a hook, a marketing point that gets you distinguished from everyone else. And it doesn't have to be like, in my case, you don't have to be mean or you don't have to be, um, um, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, a woman or a woman litigator. I mean, you, you know, you have to find your own thing. Um, but there has to be something that distinguishes you, and that's very hard to come up with. And, um, you know, then once you do have a brand or a hook, how do you get known for it? How do you publicize it? Um, because let's say I have this great hook I thought of. You know, let's say you have a product. Let's say I, whatever kind of entrepreneur you have you're a service, you're a product, you know, have a product. You come up with some hook that you think is interesting, and then you have it has to be. Unless you're lucky and it's word of mouth or you have a great YouTube, you know, then you have to figure out how to publicize it. So, I mean, my solutions, I don't have a magic bullet, but I'll, I'd will say definitely consider finding a mentor in the industry, in whatever industry you're in. It doesn't have to be in your company even. Someone who is older and knowledgeable and who can introduce you to people and teach you and guide you. And if you're in an organization, that's easier to do, and they're they're much more willing to do it. Um, you know, use social media if you're adept at that. Try to get out there, make speeches, network. Um, If you're an undiscovered gem, that's not going to help. You need to be bold and creative.
0: I tell lawyers Um, all the time that if you're the best kept secret in the legal market, you're going broke.
1: Right, exactly. And I'm going to make a silly analogy and people are going to roll their eyes. But let's say you're single and you want to get a date. A strategy of sitting home and waiting for the doorbell to ring or a phone call, email, or text message to arrive is not a good strategy for finding a date. You have to get out there. You can go on a computer dating service, but if you don't like that, you need to be out and about. You need to play golf or tennis or poker or join the Sierra Club or take an extension course or do something. Because um, if you're not out there, no one's going to find you. They really, it's, they're not going to knock on your door and say, my God, that's who you're who I've been looking for, for my product, my service. I need you that you need to be out there so they can see you and find you. Um, and that's hard because, I mean, everyone tries to use social media. Everyone <laughs> tries to make speeches. I mean, people should if they aren't. You, everyone tries to network. And networking is a process, as I know you've told people a million times. I mean, what is, I don't know what the conventional wisdom is, but it's something like you need seven to ten touches before – you can develop a relationship yeah, with someone that's... where they're actually, and I mean, so this is all, it's a lot of work. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's worth it because the reward is, is terrific. Um, so that, you know, my my advice is pretty, as I said, prosaic. You have to find a hook. You have to find a brand, and you have to be bold and creative. You don't have to be a jerk, and you don't have to be the meanest anything, but you do have to be out there. And you have to, um, and you have to push yourself. Um, you know, I don't want people to have to say it's only people with big personalities or it's only people who are completely extroverted who are ever going to make it. I think, you know, you just have to, um, but you do have to step forward. And if you are in an organization, then there are times when you need, when, you know, if you're in a discussion, don't open your mouth just to be part of the discussion and say anything you want anytime you want. But when you have a good idea, speak up and say it. Go ahead. You know, it, it, you know, just, you know, get yourself. Noticed.
0: Yeah, I think that's... that's the fen- best
1: I can do. I, you know, I think that's great. I wish I had this formula for you, but I don't.
0: No, but I, I think you're right on the money, and it keeps coming up over and over again when I talk to people in a lot of different industries that, you know, you can't rely on some magic thing or, or oh, I'm on LinkedIn, they're my LinkedIn friend. You know, a like, a link, a share, and a follow doesn't really equal a relationship. You have to be out there building those connections well, if you want them to work for you.
1: Let me tell you, I have maybe a thousand LinkedIn followers or, you know, friends or whatever you want to call them. And I also do some posting because DLA has articles you can choose from, you know, and if they're really interesting and, you know, and have something, you know, about the economy or something that is really, I mean, not a serious article, not, not, not fluff, junk. yeah, I'll post it on my LinkedIn site. Um, and you know what? You know how much business I've gotten from LinkedIn? <laughs> None.
0: Yeah. Ever. Right. Because you're not going to go to LinkedIn to find a billion dollar litigator. Exactly. So, right. <laughs> That's. Then,
1: then. In fact, you know, it's and it's as it's becomes increasingly difficult because most corporations have outside counsel selected, and as long as they're getting results, they're not going to change. And um, a lot of outside counsel are trying to limit the number of, of, and sort of a lot of companies are trying to limit the number of outside counsel they have and um or bring someone in to do the, you know a general counsel in from the outside who can run some of their stuff so it you know we all know it's the economics of the of the of the business world are just getting tougher all around yep so, so you know it it's um i it's hard for me to say that an as a solo a solopreneur And someone at the the top of a big law firm are experiencing the same things, but you'd be shocked at how similar the situations are.
0: Nope, they are. So, Linda, i got a couple more questions for you, but before we go on, I've got to thank my sponsor. And this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. Podfly sets you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you sound amazing. Podfly does all the heavy lifting and the technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing cool people like Linda Smith. For an exclusive offer to the listeners of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do, visit their website at podfly.net slash cool things. So Linda, I call the show Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. What are you doing right now in your business that's new and exciting and and, and maybe cool?
1: Well, I think, um, I think what's new and exciting is... Um, taking my practice and moving to DLA Piper after 37 years at O'Malley Myers. It's a huge challenge. And I am, and I hate to quote Taylor Swift, I am shaking it up. (laughs) Um, so I am looking at a new culture, new people, new computer systems. Um, and you know, I came by myself, so I didn't bring a team. So I need to build a deep bench to handle my practice. And, um, it you know old dogs I, I guess have to learn new tricks
0: yep absolutely um,
1: you know and it is um it is shockingly um uncomfortable if you're in a culture for your entire life i mean i feel like i feel like it's almost like a divorce you know it's <laughs> <laughs> because i've been <laughs> with them so long everyone knew me all the staff knew me it's a bits a big organization but everyone still knew me and, um, I'm starting over again. And I, that's why I feel like a solopreneur or an entrepreneur, because even though I'm within the structure of a very big law firm, um, worldwide, um, I'm basically approaching this anew and starting to build another practice and a team to to help me with it. So it's it's a huge challenge.
0: So one of the things I found when I launched out on my own to become a speaker and trainer and coach six years ago, I sort of relaunched myself and recreated sort of my image of who I was instead of being this marketing director for services firms. Suddenly I was my own services firm. But I found one of the cool parts about this relaunch, if you will, was the fact that I had the opportunity to reach out to everybody all over again. So my entire network... It was, it was sort of a, a free invitation to, like, have lunch and coffee and a drink and tell everybody what I was trying to accomplish. And in some cases, people were really interested, and they became the people who really helped me launch this business, you know lawyers that I used to work with who remember the first you know training class I ever did, the managing partner at Brobeck Austin, a guy by the name of Steve Zeger, who is also a nationally known litigator. Steve came to me and said, you're really good at being connected in the community, and most attorneys stink at it. So I want you to create a class for lawyers on how to network and it's going to be next Friday and I'm going to make it mandatory for everybody in the Austin office. And I thought they're going to fire me. I'd only worked there about a month. I thought they're going to hate this. (laughs) And I stood up and I I did this presentation and the lawyers all loved it. They ended up sending me around the country uh, to some of the other offices. And when we changed firms with the the corporate group, I went over to Andrews Kurth and they sent me around to all seven or eight of their offices to, to do the same presentation and that sort of launched my career but I reached out when I finally did this as my full-time job 7 or 8 years later I reached out to the partners that I'd worked with many of which had gone different directions because of course Brobeck had collapsed and and the lawyers scattered to different firms I reached out to those people and many of them walked me into their managing partners and said he should be the speaker at our next you know partner meeting because I've seen him, and I've seen what he's done, and so a lot of people who I reached out to embraced me, and I probably never would have had a career if it hadn't been for that small percentage of people who said, I'm with you on this move, and, and I'm going to make things happen for you. Some people were indifferent, and then I think you run into the people who are the naysayers. I think you run into some people who kind of hope you fail in your new adventure, but I kind of thought the coolest part of that that redirection was that I had the ability to call anybody, and I had a reason to call them. Are you finding that? Um no
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not, but i I hope to. Um one of the things about I have a ginormous network of other lawyers, um, none of whom are interested in providing me with additional business <laughs> because they're interested in, in keeping it at their firm or if they're you know if they've launched something else, keeping it with them. So having a large network of, of many, many practitioners is not something, I mean, for my kind of cases where, you know, they're, they're pretty much at the top, the biggest cases, um, no one is going to hand me um, one of those cases and take it away from, e- from either their, com- their firm or from a firm that they have better control over so i'm having i'm having a difficulty with that i am i am networking and i am um i i you know i have no doubt that this will be a success but it is um it is interesting that as the legal market has tightened which has gone on for the last 10 or 15 years um you know i don't think people are in a well, other lawyers are in a sharing mode um so i have to um I'm going to have to do some new networking and develop a new network of general counsel and, um, heads of litigation, you know, and, and other people in, in the communities. And I haven't, I usually operate nationally, so it's not like, just in Los Angeles, but I'm going to have to uh, um, do a lot of work to actually reach out here
0: and, and tell them your and, new story. I mean, that's that's part of it too. Is you've got a whole new story to tell with the new firm.
1: Yes, I do, and I you know, and I sent out announcements and um, to everyone I've ever met, and um, got a lot of congratulations, and have followed up with people. I mean, I think I think this is going to be fine, but it is. Um, I am not finding that despite my very large network of people, I'm not finding it terribly... Nurturing in terms, or supportive in terms of trying to find me
0: work. So that brings me to because a question. So if somebody's feeling they're out there and they're trying to network and they're not feeling the the love of their existing network or the nurturing, what advice do you have for that person? What advice do you have for yourself?
1: Um, get a new network. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, start establishing new contacts. Now that's a, it's a process,
0: and it takes and that's time. That's why I
1: was saying, um, you know, speak if you could speak to a group that is. Absolutely relevant to your, to your, um, the audience that you want to be in front of. Um, call some of the, call some of the, um, in my case, instead of calling the lawyers, call the CEO or call other people who can, who can make introductions and start things rolling for you. Um, you know, if you have a social media ability to to contact people that way, but again, not just a LinkedIn or not just I mean, people people do not choose important professionals to help them or important businesses or services to help them based on seeing an ad on 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 uh, on the internet or a LinkedIn page. They need to have, they need to know you, trust you, and like you, and trust you, before they're going to do business with you. Before they're going to put themselves in your hands. And so it is a, it is a big job.
0: And it's hard work. I mean, I've been teaching this whole idea of networking and, and your reputation and your brand for a long time. And for when I first started, people were like, well, no, nobody, nobody cares about that. And over the years, it's become one of the hottest (laughs) topics out there. I mean, I I get a lot of work because people do care. And at the top levels, they care. I have partners in major law firms who kind of roll their eyes when they hear that the the speaker at the partner meeting is going to be the networking guy. And they're like, Oh, God. And then afterwards, these same people who Maybe the meeting planner or the, the, the director of marketing warned me this partner is going to be hard on you afterwards, and I'll see the hand go up, and I'll be like, uh-oh. And then that person says, I wish I had heard this when I was 30 years old. And they get so excited about the fact that this is doable, but it has to be spoken in their language. And so even at the top levels of all industries, the whole idea of this network matters.
1: I totally agree with that, and the thing is I think what your are Selling and I mean that in in a positive way <laughs> um, has become if not I mean if you assume the excellence of the service or the product, just assume that is as a given, then everything. It, everything relies on, on yep. um, business relationships and networking and yep. marketing. And it is not something that lawyers know anything about. No, and they don't in teach fact, it in law school. Yeah, they don't teach it in law school. But, I mean, I have gotten through my whole career without really doing it. Um, I was just, you know, I was lucky I had um, repeat clients, and then my reputation got big, and, you know, I, it just sort of snowballed, and I didn't have to go out and, and look for business um so that you know 38 years later i'm saying <laughs> uh, I've never been. I've never, how do I do the business development? And I you know I know the things to do and I can say them and I'm implementing them, but it is, it's hard going.
0: So, Linda, I think um, we could talk about you and your career path and all the great things you've done for hours. However, I believe that some of the best entrepreneurial spirited people, I believe they're also observers. So I love to ask the guests on my show, is in addition to you and D.L.A. Piper, who's someone out there that you see doing something very cool, new, exciting that you think – Wow, they're crushing it.
1: Well, I would say, I guess I, I'm still sort of fixated on the legal on the legal aspects, and there are people they talk about, and this, this I think is one of the one of those phrases that I think people will go, Ugh, you know, you're supposed to see around, you have supposed to have the ability to see around corners, mm-hmm. and what that means is you're supposed to have the ability to know what the next big thing is going to be and get there first, and it, you know, that's a skill that, that is very difficult. So the people I admire are the people who got in early to cybersecurity and privacy because that is now scorching hot. And there's also a whole new area of the law called the Internet of Things yeah, that is scorching hot. Yep. And then in the pharmaceutical area, there are these um, the pharmaceutical companies paying the generic companies not to launch their products. <laughs> um and they're called pay for delay cases and again another example of you know something that is hot 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 but unless unless you were able to be prescient enough to get in there early, you're you've missed the, the the bandwagon. I mean you can jump on now but it's it's late. You're not an expert. Someone else has done, you know, many well, cases where
0: And it reminds me of the old Wayne Gretzky quote and that is, you know, don't skate to where the puck is, but you gotta skate to where the puck <laughs> exactly. is gonna be.
1: Well and I I think that applies in tennis. I think there's so much of it, you know, is anticipating where it's going to go as opposed to where it is. And I think that um, that that's a terrific skill to have. Um, and, you know, being the first one to go to Silicon Valley instead of, you know, instead of the 20th uh, law firm to go there or the 20th, you know, anything that you can do. Um, you know, now they're calling L.A. Silicon Beach. <laughs> and there's a lot of startups down here, entrepreneurs, a lot of incubators, a lot of startups, a lot of money. Um, so I think, you know, that's another thing to try to get into is there's, um, and I, I do this thing for Broad Circle, which is a woman's empowerment group, um, named after Eli Broad. Um, but, um, and it has chick launcher things where you can, <laughs> if you have a new business, you can apply under chick launcher for funding. <laughs> and this other group has fast pitch. And there's all these other ways to crowdsource and, um, and get organizations to back you. And, you know, and I think that there's a lot of opportunity, but you have to seize it.
0: So in addition to being great observers, I think really good entrepreneurs and, and people who have that entrepreneurial spirit, they want to do more than make money. They, they want to leave their mark. So I love to ask my guests... What do you do to give back to the greater good?
1: Okay, well, what I've done—the <laughs> problem is, I see—I seem one-dimensional in that. It seems like all I do is practice law. No, but no, what it's I've, okay. <laughs> but um, um, that is probably pretty much all I do. I've, I have, you know, an outside life and kids and all that kind of stuff. But um, what I've done is, I've, i I've, I've taken on some, case, <clears throat> some cases—excuse <clears throat> me—that I really believe in, and I worked really, really hard on um and they're both um there one is um I'll just tell you about them quickly cuz I could talk about them forever but one <laughs> is a voting rights act case and what happened is and we're representing Chicano's Por la Casa and Common Cause and Valle de Sol and the Southwest Voter Education Project and a bunch of public interest groups what happened is that Kansas and Arizona passed proof of citizenship laws which basically combined anti-immigrant sentiment and voter fraud fears, and it requires that all voters who want to register either have to provide a birth certificate or a passport at the time they register. And many U.S. citizens of color or the elderly and the poor lack passports. I mean, why would they have one? Or how to obtain their original birth certificates.
0: Uh, Welcome to the cool things entrepreneurs do podcast with your host tom singer in each episode we explore the interesting lives of business leaders entrepreneurs solopreneurs and others who have a healthy dose of the entrepreneurial spirit it is time to explore something cool now here is your host tom singer Hey, and welcome to another episode of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do, where I try very hard to bring you interviews with interesting people doing very cool things and building their businesses, but across all industry lines. And today I have with me a partner in the Los Angeles office of the law firm of D.L.A. Piper. Linda Smith represents clients in high stakes or bet the company level and complex litigation across a variety of industry lines. Now, those of you who listen to the show know that I have a special interest in attorneys because I spent four years working inside two of the biggest law firms in America, what they call the Amlaw 100, which is the 100 largest firms. As the marketing director about a decade ago, but I still continue to work one-on-one coaching lawyers and working with teams of lawyers in different firms about their business development, their networking, their brand, and their strategy because I believe that lawyers are really entrepreneurs, and even if they're in a big firm, they're kind of a solopreneur because at the end of the day, you're tracked inside your law firm based on the business that you bring in. You sort of eat what you kill. So I am a big fan of lawyers, and I'm a big fan of lawyers that are entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurial. And when I was introduced to Linda Smith, I got really, really excited because she just also, after a long career in this high powered legal world, just changed law firms five months ago. So we talk on this show a lot about relaunching and reinventing, and Linda's in the middle of restarting her practice with a new firm. And in my research, And my study about Linda before we had this conversation, I ran across an article where corporate board member magazine named Linda the meanest woman alive. Now, how cool is that, that we have the meanest woman alive right here on the show, and it's the first time she's ever done a podcast interview, and I told her it's okay, because I'm the nicest guy alive, so we're going to get along absolutely great. Linda, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. Actually, I get along better with people who are mean, because then (laughs) I can ramp up my game. Um, But... um, Um, maybe I should start by telling you how I got that name. Yeah, why don't we Um,
0: start with the meanest woman alive? How did that happen? Okay,
1: Um, well, it's actually fabulous because I really stand about five feet two on a good day, and um, I am uh, blonde and busty, and when I was younger, I had big hair. When I was younger, I had sort of the Farrah Fawcett look, and so I had to deal with all the blonde jokes and everything else, and I am actually a very professional, and I ha- so I had to be very smart and very agile. Um, because when I got to the law firm, I started out um, at O'Melveny and Mars, I spent 37 years there before this challenging new transfer. When I got to the law firm, I was um, young and, and pretty sexy for you know for a lawyer, <laughs> and I had to be, and it was all men. And I can't tell you how many times when I walked into either a courtroom or take a deposition with my briefcase and was asked if I was the court reporter. I've had people call me honey and um, ask me to bring the coffee. I mean, I have all the old stories. And one of the problems is, and we can get to this later if anybody's interested, is that it actually has changed for the better, but it's not completely there yet. It's still mostly a man's world. So I had that. To deal with, and the way I operate is I think I'm very professional and fair and calm, and I will deal with other people and i'm I'm a nice person. my friends think I'm a nice person but if um, if the other side in my cases um, begins to misrepresent the facts or the law or starts attacking my client in a in a personal or unprofessional way, then watch out because I will go after them hammer and tong. And that is um, one of the reasons I got the the moniker of The Meanest Woman Alive. But it was actually given to me by my clients, not the other side, because what I would do is in preparing them for either deposition or for trial, I would pretend I was the other side and take their deposition or – Go through their trial testimony and be incredibly tough on them, and not. And I knew where all the you know holes were <laughs> and all the problems were, and I would ask them questions and they would have a very difficult time. And um, once they were through with my training, they found that their actual testimony on the stand or in the deposition was so much easier. Than anything I had put them through. So my own clients, Price Coopers, and Humana, and Credit Suisse First Boston, and um, you know everybody else started calling me the meanest woman alive. And now that has stuck with me. And in fact, when we were um, talking to the chairman and CEO of Advanced Micro Devices (AMD), who was who then hired us for the largest private antitrust case ever brought in the United States, the world or the universe. <laughs> um, you know, he I mentioned something about the meanest woman alive and he was really excited and asked me to send him the article and he just loved it. <laughs> I think they loved the fact that um what 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 they told all the salespeople who they got together at the first meeting, the executive team is, okay, this is Linda Smith. She's the meanest woman alive. If you cooperate with her and follow her directions and provide her with the information that she asked for when it gets to trial or your deposition, she will protect you and rip the other side's heart out. But if you don't, she'll let them rip your heart out. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> um, it's sort of violent metaphors, I know. But, um, so now, you know, I, my clients want to feel like they are protected and that, you know if it's fa- if it's a fair question it's a fair question but if it isn't a fair question they don't get away with anything with me
0: so i you know having worked closely with lawyers i know that when you've got bet the litigation or bet the company litigation coming down you definitely want someone you know as your attorney and on your team who has your back so that's i th- we talk a lot on the show and with people who i work with about what is your brand and you have to have a brand that's memorable you can't just be when you're out and about you can't just say hi i'm linda i'm a lawyer because that makes people go like oh Golly gee, another lawyer, you know, so having something that's memorable, I think, works for you on lots of levels.
1: Yes, I think it does, too. Although um, I have to say that when I when you asked me to be on the show, I was thinking that I had and I do have a brand. I think my brand is several things. It is being a woman litigator because and with a national reputation, because there are probably and I've spoken to other people to ask them their opinion Maybe less than two hands worth of nationally known women litigators for large company cases, um, and so that's one of my brands. And then the other is the meanest woman alive. But I, th- and, you know, obviously this is coupled with you can be as mean as you want or as female as you want or anything else, but you better your work better be brilliant. And that's one of the things I know that you've spoken about. Um, the problem is with branding is that in my profession, as in most being brilliant or doing great work and getting great results is a given. My clients are paying huge amounts of money. They expect me and my team to be on call 24/7 and they expect brilliance. That's a given. There's lots of those lawyers out there. So how are they going to choose you? If it's a relationship that I've had in the past, then it's all about, you know, they have to I, you know, people who like you, know you, trust you and you've gotten good results for. It, we'll come back, but if they don't know you, then the branding helps. Having the reputation and having having a hook, I guess I would call it. The other thing I was thinking, and I was, I have all these great stories of these big cases. I did the Exxon Valdez spill and the BCCI collapse, and I deposed Michael Dell in the AMD case, and I. Went head to head with Doctor Phil, who was our jury consultant <laughs> in, the, in a in tr- a in a case for the you know eight major inter- entertainment studios, and I was representing the Hollywood Foreign Press in the Golden Globes case, and I have all these great war stories. And if you ask a litigator, all they'll do is start telling you lawyer stories. But as you referenced at the beginning, before the entrepreneurs who are listening to this decide that while I may have some cool stories to tell, my career doesn't apply to their situation. I can assure them that every nationally known litigator is an entrepreneur. No matter what you are with a large law firm, you still only eat what you kill. If you don't bring in business, your run is over. I'm a rainmaker, and if I make rain, great. If I don't, I'm out. The same dynamic applies to my relationships, contacts, business development, as to any entrepreneur. Um, and that is because corporations hire people, not law firms. And surprisingly enough, because I, I know people are thinking this isn't the case, but it's just a person. It's the general counsel or the CEO chooses legal counsel based on who they know, like, and trust. And uh, the one added dimension is we have to win or otherwise obtain a, you know, otherwise favorably resolve their cases. But just like in any other relationship, personal relationships are everything.
0: Well, I agree, and it's interesting to hear you talk because this is the exact stuff that I train lawyers and other business professionals about business development. So how did you early on – because clearly to reach the level – that you've reached in your career, you've been doing this for a long time. You don't get to wake up one day and say, now I'm gonna be an entrepreneurial lawyer and be at the top of the heap and with a national reputation in about 45 minutes. So what was it early on that led you to be entrepreneurial in your career?
1: Well, um, I think I, I, I had the drive and the passion, which I know a lot of entrepreneurs do, so that maybe isn't enough to answer the question. Um, and um, I also have some, some suggestions um about um making sure you have you know I have a lot of suggestions maybe we should get to that when we get to what advice do I have for people in general um you know find yourself a mentor um you know speak up when you have something to say um but I wanted to be I wanted to be a top litigator and I started at the bottom at a very competitive firm where, you know, most people are not there by the time partnership announcements are made. And um, as I said, I, I'm a, I'm a little blonde girl <laughs> and now a woman. I've heard every blonde joke in the world. Um, so I was very smart and determined to run the gauntlet and make it. And I tell a story. I, I had to give a speech before all the state um federal, all the state judges for the Court of Appeals who have to run for re-election in California. And so I brought with me, and it's such a great visual, I wish I could show people, but I brought with me um, a shoe. And it was a ginormous shoe. It's, um, I think it's a size 24 or 25, but it looks (laughs) like the kind of shoe that maybe in the olden days would be hung outside the shop if it was a cobbler or a shoemaker, (laughs) you know, to indicate their craft because, of course, no one would ever really wear it. But the shoe is legendary. It belonged to Shaquille O'Neal, who used to be an L.A. Laker, and then he was with the Miami Heat. And in L.A., um, he, you know, he helped win the NBA championship three times. And so I hold up the shoe and I say to people, my ownership of this shoe is something of an absurdity. I can't put both my feet in it. I can put both my feet in it and have extra room. It's way too big. I can't perform in it. It wasn't designed with me in mind. And the idea of filling the shoe is both daunting and absolutely ridiculous. So what I did is I fashioned my own shoe. Not overnight, not even in a year, but over time. And I built one that fits, is designed for me, by me, and that I can perform in just fine um, in that shoe, I can and have walked into the board of directors meetings or the chairman's office at IBM, Price Coopers, HCA, Seagrams, AMD, Time Warner, and Exxon to give my strategic advice on how to handle litigation with billions of dollars at stake. And my point is, I didn't really have a model. And so I had to develop my own style. My, my mentor, who was the head of the litigation department for many, many years, his name was Bill Vaughn, and he was about 6'5", had a deep, booming voice that sounded like um, James Little Jones, maybe a little bit Darth Vader-ish, but a very wonderful voice. And here am I, coming up to, you know, maybe the middle of his chest with my voice, which is not a deep, booming voice. And he was my mentor, so I followed, you know, I learned from him many, many important things about how to practice law and how to be trustworthy and how to, you know, how to do the, do everything in the right way. But in terms of style, I had to just make it up. And I think it was just a question of building my own shoe, building my own, my own model, and having determination and grit. Um, and also, you know, I think... I don't know how to describe this exactly, but being politically savvy, um, you know, you have to. Maybe that sounds Machiavellian, and it probably is. But you know, you have to um, understand the political situation in whatever organization you're in, whether it's big or small, or you're in the market. You know, even if it's even if you're by yourself, understand what's going on and make sure that you. You know, uh, react appropriately. So that brings me um, I don't to a, know if that's clear enough.
0: No, that makes total sense. But you bring up sort of another thing when you talk about having no role models. You really had to build your own way, and and your mentor was a six foot five booming guy, and you're a little petite blonde. That brings me to an interesting thing because I know the legal business, and while half of the people who go to law school are women, it's a small percentage who become partners in the large firms. So, what has it been like building this career? as a woman in really a male-dominated field, because I think that relates to people in all industries or many industries.
1: Well, you know, the thing is, I'm going to say the most prosaic thing in the world. You have to be choices smart. You really do. And you have to have a lot of political, what I I guess I'm calling it political savvy, but it's just sort of, you can't just be smart. You have to be very smart. And then you have to, you know, I had to walk a really fine line between, because I also refused Back in those days, and you know, there was this—all women. When I went to interviewing law firms, wore blouses with these big bows in the front that they would tie, <laughs> and I thought they were hideous, and I wouldn't wear them. So I wore appropriate clothes. I didn't come to work dressed, you know, sex. I wore suits. I wore, you know, blouses, etc. I didn't look like other other women, and I have a big personality, which I never really tried to. Quash, <laughs> um, and um, I just, um, I you know I just forged forward, and um, I had to be smarter than the men. I also have stories which now seem hilarious, but at the time weren't of clients. You know, um, asking me to be their mistress and hitting on me, and all sorts of other things like that. And you have you just have to handle it. It was very challenging, um, but once. Well, two things happen. One, um, I establish myself. And once your clients know you're really good and you have their best interests at heart and you're going to fight for them and you're going to be loyal to them and you're going to be responsive to them and you're going to listen to them, um, even if you then implement things that are a little bit different, um, they will... That was it. Then you're you're in. Um, And so, for example... PricewaterhouseCoopers I think used me for the course of 30 years. Um uh, for they it was not one case after another but they continued to have very very big cases. You know, 30 billion was one of them. It was that was the case with the collapse of the Bank of Credit and Commerce, which was also known as the Bank of Crooks and Criminals <laughs> and I represented the UK Pricewaterhouse firm and um You know, it was, um, I mean, they kept coming back for major, major cases. And I had, I had proven myself to them. So one is, one is having a track record and proving yourself. And then the other, if it's a new client, they can see the the track record. They can even talk to your other clients and they also know you by your reputation so once you get there or once you work yourself up to there you can stay there it also probably helped that um as i got older i got older <laughs> so <laughs> i was i was um you know less um less sexy and you know i still i still have a big personality and i still have big blonde hair and everything like that but i'm you know but it's less of a um I'm now someone's mother, and you know, <laughs> it just it just becomes sort of a different thing. But I think the key is, um, no matter what you're dealing with, is you have to expect that you're going to be discriminated against. And I'm not just saying women, I'm talking about people of color, I'm talking about just basically anyone who isn't, um, doesn't fit exactly the preconceptions of an organization, because it tends to be um guys like guys and they like guys who go golfing with them and play poker with them and I mean it's just it even to this day there some guys are just more comfortable with guys who remind them of the sun they either have or wish they had. And um you just have to get by that. You have to impress them with your abilities and your sense of humor and you know, your work ethic and And uh, just keep going.
0: So, Linda, in 2015, do you think it's gotten easier for young women who are entering the the career market or the legal market? I think
1: it's easier. You know, as you know, I don't know what the statistic is. I don't know if it's six out of ten or four out of ten. But the top of law school classes are now tending to be um, disproportionately women. Yes. And um, I think that they're being hired into law firms um the question is well first of all as you know life, law firms um law firm en- enrollment is exceeding the amount of jobs available right now so that's a problem for everyone but in addition i think i think women get into law firms then i think if they they can rise to a certain level i still believe that there's a glass ceiling and i'm i'm very sorry to say that i think that women can get into somewhat positions of leadership, but for example, I'm pretty outspoken and I have been, um, I have been called um, uh, opinionated and aggressive and um, uh, would sort of amount in my mind to, which is not a word anybody would use, uppity, even as a senior partner. And you would never say that about a man, a man would, a man who's opinionated um, and aggressive is a litigator is doing exactly what he's supposed to do. Hmm. So I think there still is, there still remains some blockages. I don't think it's an equal playing field, but I think it's it is much better. I mean, I have been this is my 38th year in the business. It is much better.
0: So after 38 years as a lawyer, what do you love about the life you've created?
1: Ah, here's what I love. <laughs> I call one of my practice. That I practice bathtub law.
0: (laughs) What's bathtub law? I
1: know that sounds very bizarre, (laughs) but um, my cases are always about different fact situations and often different industries. And so what I do is like AMD v Intel was about microprocessors. So I learned everything about microprocessors and how the computer industry works and how pricing is set and rebates are given, and I learned the case law about single firm dominance and exclusive dealing. And I filled the bathtub up to the very top, and I knew everything about that industry and my witnesses and how everything worked. And then when I'm go ready to go to the next case, I pull the plug. Gone, (laughs) And then the (laughs) next case I had was completely different. I represented the Hollywood Foreign Press um, in the fight over who owns the rights to the Golden Globes award program. So I filled the bathtub up again with the history of the Hollywood Foreign Press and the Golden Globes. Um, customs and practice in in networks and how they contract for award shows, their uh, relationship with Dick Clark's former production company, all the subtleties of contract law in the entertainment industry, which is has all its own unique particularities, and filled it up again. And then when that was done, I pulled the plug. So what I love, what I love about the way I get to practice. Is that, and I think even if you have a, a specialty, it may be the same because every case is very different. But at least for me, every case—I mean, Exxon oil spill—I learned all about. I had—I was in charge of showing that the sound, the that um, the heavily oiled portions of uh, Prince William Sound had healed, and so I I I had a biologist and a geologist, and I learned everything about oil and. And um, intertidal critters, and <laughs> I wanted my my um, my toxicology expert to drink oil because I thought that would be very good for the jury. But for some <laughs> reason, he refused to do that. But and then I so I learned all about oil, and then not only oil spills, but. You know, about Alaska and the storms and the natural cleansing and the da, da da da. And so, and I filled all up with that and then I pulled the plug on that. So it's a very exciting way to live your life.
0: Well, I can relate to that because as a professional speaker and master of ceremonies, I speak in all different types of industries. I do a lot of work with like partner meetings for law firms, but I also you know, software companies hire me and uh, the National Association of Truck Stop Owners has hired me and sort of everything out there that you can imagine, all these really cool industries. And it's the same thing. I have to learn just enough about the industries to be able to speak to their audience. And then the next week, I'm, you know, with some lawyers and then I'm with bankers and then I'm with construction uh, industry people. And
1: exactly. And it, it you know, it makes it fun. It to, does. To have, you know, it's, first of all, it's challenging and also, you know, you learn a, a whole new thing. I actually, when you said trucking, I did that case early on for the, for the, in the trucking industry, and all of my co-counsel. So again, my the the, the partner, because I was the second year or something. The partner was this um, really really smart, but sort of a southern good old boy guy, very bright and terrific. But he sends me out to all these meetings and I and depositions and all the other counsel in the case representing the other trucking companies are all Southern good old boys. And they're looking at me like, you know, what the blank <laughs> when they see me because they're like, who is this? Of course, I you know, eventually I ended up running the whole thing. But I mean, it was it was and I learned all about the trucking industry. And for years afterwards, whenever I saw my clients you know, my ex client, because we were done with the case, trucks, I would always pay attention. So it, it's just funny. It's um it makes life
0: very interesting. So you've built this powerful life and very entrepreneurial inside the two law firms that you've worked for. But is there anything about the entrepreneurial side of the life of, of sort of eating what you kill and being aggressive? That you don't like? Are there ever any days you think you know I could have been in-house counsel for yeah. some little company?
1: Actually, that or I think because I I live in uh, in Los Angeles. I, I look at the women who lunch in Beverly Hills and say I could be doing that instead <laughs> of
0: working. That's a great job um, if you can get it. I, I think. think I
1: would be very unhappy with, but um, <laughs> but nonetheless, yes. Um, I you know I think I actually when I. Um, I have basically not really had to look for cases. As soon as one big case ends, I seem to, within a very short time, have another very big case. And they take years. So that, or, you know, sometimes decades. So that I haven't had that feeling. But I do think, um, the pressure of being, you know, you eat what you kill. And if you don't kill, you don't eat. That pressure is, is, is incessant. And there's that concern. That you have that once, and you know it's it's all on you. No one's handing you everything. I th- I think maybe in the old days, um, if you were with a big law firm, they had what they call institutional clients who would always use the firm. But not in today's cutthroat, competitive market. Even at the highest levels, you have to you have to bring in the business, and you have to keep the business. And it's a, it's a huge um, it's a huge amount of stress and it's a it's a challenge you can look at it as a challenge or you can look at it as a real pain but um it's definitely it's definitely
0: a lot of pressure. But I think this is great advice for the listeners because sometimes people think, well, she's this powerful lawyer. How does she relate to me as a solopreneur, as a consultant, or, you know, as, as me, as a speaker? How You know, how does that matter? Well, I have the same pressures. At the end of the day, if someone's not hiring me, I'm not feeding the kids that day. I mean, obviously, I would feed the kids, but <laughs> metaphorically, right, but I, I, don't want, I don't want to start getting letters going, what, you're not feeding your right, daughters? you don't feed your daughters? <laughs> <laughs> okay. they're, they're very well fed. But uh, the pressure is there and when you leave sort of corporate america and go off on your own as a consultant or starting some sort of a of a company yourself sometimes your employees are getting paid and the ceo's not that constant you know pressure even if the money's coming in of ooh what if it dries up tomorrow i think we all right. relate to everybody who has that entrepreneurial spirit whether they're inside an organization or whether they're out on their own i think we all feel that pressure so i think it's great coming from someone you know at the very top of big law that you feel that pressure too.
1: Yes, and the thing is, it's actually, I think it's, I, you know, I'll say it's just the same, and someone who's an entrepreneur starting out or a solopreneur will roll their eyes and say, yeah, sure, um, because I do have behind me, and I, I was going to mention this um, just because I feel like I need to give a shout-out. Um, I have to bring in the business. It's on my head. I'm the rainmaker. I have to, it's, it's all me. But one of the keys to being successful in the kind of work I do is having an amazing team. And I've, um, I, I have a few secrets for having a really great team. I don't know if this is the, the time or the place to tell you, but, you know, you, you really are only as good as you can't do it alone, especially these really big cases. And sometimes my team is five people, 10, 20, 50. And um, I guess I would, if you want, I'll tell you why I think it works. Or well, we can move on to something else.
0: No, that's exactly. We're ready to get into the okay, part where well, I ask so about just, advice. So
1: what I feel like is what I do with my teams is I make it a collaboration, and I think you know I'm trying. I have been trying to decide in my own mind whether this is a trait of a woman or this is just a trait of someone, a different trait of someone who handles business in a certain way. But we have team meetings once a week. Everybody gets to talk. It doesn't matter how junior you are, you are. I make the final decisions. Everyone understands that. but everybody has input. And a lot of firms, when there's a big case, just the partners email each other developments. I email the team on everything, basically everything. Sometimes they get tired of all my emails. But <laughs> I want to make everyone be in the loop, because I think if people feel a sense of ownership. If they feel like they really are part of the team and it's our case together and they're not just working for the partner or the partners on it, it makes all the difference in the world. And um, so I try to assemble the best people I can and then I just I, I give them lots of responsibility and I um, listen to what they have to say. And I think that is the best way to grow people into leaders and also to have the best support you possibly can. And it's fantastic.
0: So what other advice do you have for people who want to, maybe they're inside a company and they want to grow an internal brand and an internal business, or maybe they want to launch off on their own and, and start something new, whether they're a lawyer or not? What, what advice do you, you know, have?
1: The problem I have is that I, you know, I feel like my advice is absolutely true, but prosaic, you need to stand out. You need to distinguish yourself. Whether we call it your brand or your chief selling point, you have to rise above the crowd. Um, Excellent work or a creative idea is not enough. It should be. Perhaps it should be, but that's not today's world. So, for example, in my world, legal excellence, as I said before, is not enough. My clients expect that.
0: That's just the ticket into the game.
1: That's the the entry ticket. It doesn't get you anywhere. I agree. Um, and so you need a hook. You need, well, you can't, a hook sounds sort of hokey, but you need a brand, a hook, a marketing point that gets you distinguished from everyone else. And it doesn't have to be like in my case, you don't have to be mean or you don't have to be, um, um, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, a woman or a woman litigator. I mean, you, you know, you have to find your own thing. Um, but there has to be something that distinguishes you, and that's very hard to come up with. And, um, you know, then once you do have a brand or a hook, how do you get known for it? How do you publicize it? Um, because let's say I have this great hook that I thought of. You know, let's say you have a product. Let's say I, whatever kind of entrepreneur you have, you're a service, you're a product, you know, have a product, you come up with some hook that you think is interesting, and then you have it has to be... Unless you're lucky and it's word of mouth or you have a great YouTube, you know, then you have to figure out how to publicize it. So, I mean, my solutions, I don't have a magic bullet, but I'll, I'd say definitely consider finding a mentor in the industry, in whatever industry you're in. It doesn't have to be in your company even. Someone who is older and knowledgeable and who can introduce you to people And teach you and guide you. And if you're in an organization, that's easier to do. And they're, they're much more willing to do it. Um, you know, use social media if you're adept at that. Try to get out there, make speeches, network, um, If you're an undiscovered gem, that's not going to (laughs) help. You need to be bold and creative.
0: I tell lawyers Um, all the time that if you're the best kept secret in the legal market, you're going broke.
1: Right, exactly. And I'm going to make a silly analogy and people are going to roll their eyes. But let's say you're single and you want to get a date. A strategy of sitting home and waiting for the doorbell to ring or a phone call, email, or text message to arrive is not a good strategy for finding a date. You have to get out there. You can go on a computer dating service, but if you don't like that, you need to be out and about. You need to play golf or tennis or poker or join the Sierra Club or take an extension course or do something because... um if you're not out there, no one's gonna find you they really it's, they're not gonna knock on your door and say, "My God, that's who you're who I've been looking for for my product, my service, I need you that you need to be out there so they can see you and find you um and that's hard because I mean everyone tries to use social media, everyone <laughs> tries to make speeches I mean people should if they aren't. You, everyone tries to network, and networking is a process, as I know you've told people a million times. I mean, what is, I don't know what the conventional wisdom is, but it's something like you need seven to ten touches before you can develop a relationship yeah, with someone that's... where they're actually, and I mean, so this is all, it's a lot of work, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's worth it, because the reward is, is terrific. Um, so that, you know, my, my advice is pretty as I said prosaic you have to find a hook you have to find a brand and you have to be bold and creative you don't have to be a jerk and you don't have to be the meanest anything but you do have to be out there and you have to um, and you have to push yourself Um, you know I don't want people to have to say it's only people with big personalities or it's only people who are completely extroverted who are ever going to make it I think you know you just have to, um, but you do have to step forward. And if you are in an organization, then there are times when you need, when, you know, if you're in a discussion, don't open your mouth just to be part of the discussion and say anything you want, anytime you want. But when you have a good idea, speak up and say it. Go ahead. You know, it, it you know, just, you know, get yourself noticed.
0: Yeah, I think that's – that's, and that's fen-
1: the best I can do. I, you know, I think that's is, great. I wish I had this formula for you, but I don't.
0: No, but I, I think you're right on the money, and it keeps coming up over and over again when I talk to people in a lot of different industries that you know, you can't rely on some magic thing or, or oh, I'm on link. They're my LinkedIn friend. You know, A like, a link, a share, and a follow doesn't really equal a relationship. You have to be out there building those connections well, if you want them to work for you. Let
1: me tell you, I have – maybe a thousand LinkedIn followers or you know, friends, or whatever you want to call them. And I also do some posting because DLA has articles you can choose from, you know, and if they're really interesting and you know, and have something, you know, about the economy or something that is really I mean not a serious article, not not, not fluff, junk. Yeah. I'll post it on my LinkedIn site. Um and you know what? You know how much business I've gotten from LinkedIn? <laughs> None.
0: Yeah, ever. Right. Because you're not going to go to LinkedIn to find a billion dollar litigator. Exactly. So, right. <laughs> That's. Then, then.
1: In fact, you know, it's and it's as it's becomes increasingly difficult because most corporations have outside counsel selected, and as long as they're getting results, they're not going to change. And um, a lot of outside counsel are trying to limit the number of, and sort of a lot of companies are trying to limit the number of outside counsel they have. And, um, or bring someone in to do the, you know, a general counsel in from the outside who can run some of their stuff. So it, you know, we all know it's the economics of the, of the, of the business world are just getting tougher all around. Yep. So, so you know, it, it's, um, I, it's hard for me to say that an on, as a solo, a solopreneur, And someone at the the top of a big law firm are experiencing the same things, but you'd be shocked at how similar the situations are.
0: Nope, they are. So, Linda, i got a couple more questions for you, but before we go on, I've got to thank my sponsor. And this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. Podfly sets you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure that you sound amazing. Podfly does all the heavy lifting and the technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing cool people like Linda Smith. For an exclusive offer to the listeners of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do, visit their website at podfly.net slash cool things. So Linda, I call the show Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. What are you doing right now in your business that's new and exciting and and, and maybe cool?
1: Well, I think, um, I think what's new and exciting is... Um taking my practice and moving to DLA Piper after 37 years at O'Malley Myers. It's a huge challenge. And I am, and I hate to quote Taylor Swift, I am shaking it up. <laughs> um, so I am looking at a new culture, new people, new computer systems. Um And, you know, I came by myself, so I didn't bring a team. So I need to build a deep bench to handle my practice. And um it, you know, Old dogs, I, I guess, have to learn new tricks.
0: Yep, absolutely. Um,
1: you know, and it is um, it is shockingly um, uncomfortable if you're in a culture for your entire life. I mean, I feel like I feel like it's almost like a divorce. You know, it's <laughs> because I've been <laughs> with he's so long. Everyone knew me. All the staff knew me. It's a it's a big organization, but everyone still knew me. And um, I'm starting over again. And I, that's why I feel like a solopreneur or an entrepreneur, because even though I'm within the structure of a very big law firm um, worldwide, um, I'm basically approaching this anew and starting to build another practice and a team to to help me with it. So it's, it's a huge challenge.
0: So one of the things I found when I launched out on my own to become a speaker and trainer and coach six years ago, I sort of relaunched myself and recreated sort of my image of who I was instead of being this marketing director for services firms. Suddenly I was my own services firm. But I found one of the cool parts about this relaunch, if you will, was the fact that I had the opportunity to reach out to everybody all over again. So my entire network... It was, it was sort of a, a free invitation to, like, have lunch and coffee and a drink and tell everybody what I was trying to accomplish. And in some cases, people were really interested, and they became the people who really helped me launch this business. You know Lawyers that I used to work with who remember the first you know, training class I ever did, the managing partner at Brobeck Austin, a guy by the name of Steve Zeger, who is also a nationally known litigator. Steve came to me and said, you're really good at being connected in the community, and most attorneys stink at it. So I want you to create a class for lawyers on how to network, and it's going to be next Friday, and I'm going to make it mandatory for everybody in the Austin office, and I thought, they're going to fire me. I'd only worked there about a month. I thought, they're going to hate this, (laughs) and I stood up, and I I did this presentation, and the lawyers all loved it. They ended up sending me around the country uh, to some of the other offices, and when we changed firms with the the corporate group, I went over to Andrews Kurth, and they sent me around to all seven or eight of their offices to, to do the same presentation, and that sort of launched my career but I reached out when I finally did this as my full-time job 7 or 8 years later I reached out to the partners that I'd worked with many of which had gone different directions because of course Brobeck had collapsed and and the lawyers scattered to different firms I reached out to those people and many of them walked me into their managing partners and said he should be the speaker at our next you know partner meeting because I've seen him, and I've seen what he's done, and so a lot of people who I reached out to embraced me, and I probably never would have had a career if it hadn't been for that small percentage of people who said, I'm with you on this move, and, and I'm going to make things happen for you. Some people were indifferent, and then I think you run into the people who are the naysayers. I think you run into some people who kind of hope you fail in your new adventure, but I kind of thought the coolest part of that that redirection was that I had the ability to call anybody, and I had a reason to call them. Are you finding that? Um, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not, but I, I hope to. Um, one of the things about I have a ginormous network of other lawyers, um, none of whom are interested in providing me with additional business <laughs> because they're interested in, in keeping it at their firm or if they're you know if they've launched something else, keeping it with them. So having a large network of, of many, many practitioners is not something, I mean, for my kind of cases where, you know, they're, they're pretty much at the top, the biggest cases, um, no one is going to hand me um, one of those cases and take it away from, e- from either their, com- their firm or from a firm that they have better control over. So I'm having I'm having a difficulty with that. I am I am networking and I am um I, I you know, I have no doubt that this will be a success, but it is um it is interesting that as the legal market has tightened, which has gone on for the last ten or fifteen years, um, you know, I don't think people are in a well, other lawyers are in a sharing mode. Um, so I have to um i 'm going to have to do some new networking and develop a new network of general counsel and um, heads of litigation you know around and other people in in the communities and i haven't I usually operate nationally, so it's not like just in Los Angeles but i'm going to have to uh, uh, do a lot of work to actually Reach out here and
0: and tell them your and, new story. I mean, that's that's part of it too. Is you've got a whole new story to tell with the new firm.
1: Yes, I do, and I You know, and I sent out announcements and um, to everyone I've ever met, and um, got a lot of congratulations and have followed up with people. I mean, I think I think this is going to be fine, but it is. Um, I am not finding that, despite my very large network. Of people, I'm not finding it terribly nurturing in terms or supportive in terms of trying to find me work.
0: So that brings me to because, a question. So if somebody's feeling they're out there and they're trying to network and they're not feeling the the love of their existing network or the nurturing, what advice do you have for that person? What advice do you have for yourself?
1: Um, get a new network. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, start establishing new contacts. Now that's a, it's a process, and it takes and that's time. That's why I was saying, um, you know. Speak if you could speak to a group that is absolutely relevant to your to your um, the audience that you want to be in front of. Um, call some of the call some of the um, in my case, instead of calling the lawyers, call the CEO or call other people who can who can make introductions and start things rolling for you. Um, you know, if you have a social media ability to, to contact people that way, but again, not just a LinkedIn or not just, I mean, people, people do not choose important professionals to help them or important businesses or services to help them based on seeing an ad on, 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 uh, on the Internet or a LinkedIn page. They need to have, they need to know you, trust you, and like you and trust you before they're going to do business with you, before they're going to put themselves in your hands. And so it is a, it is a big job.
0: And it's hard work. I mean, I've been teaching this whole idea of networking and and your reputation and your brand for a long time. And for when I first started, people were like, well, no, nobody, nobody cares about that. And over the years, it's become one of the hottest <laughs> topics out there. I mean I, I get a lot of work because I think it's- people do care, and at the top levels, they care. I have partners in major law firms who kind of roll their eyes when they hear that the, the speaker at the partner meeting is going to be the networking guy. And they're like, oh, God. And then afterwards, these same people who maybe the meeting planner or the, the, the director of marketing warned me – this partner is going to be hard on you afterwards, and I'll see the hand go up, and I'll be like, uh-oh, and then that person says, I wish I had heard this when I was 30 years old, and they get so excited about the fact that this is doable, but it has to be spoken in their language, and so even at the top levels of all industries, the whole idea of this network matters.
1: I totally agree with that, and the thing is I think what you're selling – and I mean that in, in a positive way <laughs> – um, has become – if not, I mean, if you assume the excellence of the service or the product, just assume that is as a given, then everything everything relies on, on yep. um, business relationships and networking and yep. marketing, and it is not something that lawyers know anything about. No, and they don't in teach fact, it in law school. Yeah, they don't teach it in law school, but I mean, I have gotten through my whole career without really doing it. Um, I was just, you know, I was lucky I had um, a repeat clients and then my reputation got big and, you know, it just sort of snowballed and I didn't have to go out and and look for business. Um, So that, you know, 38 years later, I'm saying, (laughs) <laughs> uh, I've never been I've never, how do I do the business development and I you know I know the things to do and I can say them and I'm implementing them but it is it's hard going
0: so Linda I think um, we could talk about you and your career path and all the great things you've done for hours however I believe that some of the best entrepreneurial spirited people I believe they're also observers so I love to ask the guests on my show is in addition to you and DLA Piper who's someone out there that you see doing something very cool new exciting that you think Wow, they're crushing it.
1: Well, I would say, I guess I, I'm still sort of fixated on the legal on the legal aspects, and there are people they talk about, and this this I think is one of the one of those phrases that I think people will go, ugh, you know, you're supposed to see around. You have supposed to have the ability to see around corners, mm-hmm. and what that means is you're supposed to have the ability to know what the next big thing is going to be and get there first, and it, you know that's a skill that, that is very difficult. So the people I admire are the people who got in early to cybersecurity and privacy because that is now scorching hot. And there's also a whole new area of the law called the Internet of Things
0: yeah, that is
1: scorching hot. Yep. And then in the pharmaceutical area, there are these um, the pharmaceutical companies paying the generic companies not to launch their products. <laughs> um, and they're called pay for delay cases and again, another example of you know something that is hot 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 but unless unless you were able to be prescient enough to get in there early. You're you've missed the, the the bandwagon. I mean, you can jump on now, but it's it's late. You're not an expert. Someone else has done you know many well, cases where.
0: And it reminds me of the old Wayne Gretzky quote, and that is you know don't skate to where the puck is, but you got to skate to where the puck exactly. is going to be.
1: Well, and I I think that applies in tennis. I'm saying so much of it you know is anticipating where it's going to go as opposed to where it is and i think that um that that's a terrific skill to have um and you know being the first one to go to silicon valley instead of you know instead of the 20th uh, law firm to go there or the 20 you know anything that you can do um you know now they're calling la silicon beach <laughs> and there's a lot of startups down here entrepreneurs a lot of incubators a lot of startups a lot of money Um, so I think, you know, that's another thing to try to get into is there's, um, and I, I do this thing for Broad Circle, which is a women's empowerment group, um, named after Eli Broad, um, but, um, and it has Chick Launcher things where you can, (laughs) if you have a new business, you can apply under Chick Launcher for (laughs) funding. And this other group has Fast Pitch and there's all these other ways to crowdsource and, um, and get organizations to back you, and you know and I think that there's a lot of opportunity, but you have to seize it.
0: so in addition to being great observers, I think really good entrepreneurs and, and people who have that entrepreneurial spirit, they want to do more than make money, they, they want to leave their mark. So I love to ask my guests. What do you do to give back to the greater good
1: okay well, what I've done <laughs> the problem is i see I seem one dimensional in that It seems like all I do is practice law no, but no what it's I've, okay. <laughs> but um But um, that is probably pretty much all i do i've I have you know an outside life and kids and all that kind of stuff but um what I've done is i've 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 taken on some cases <clears throat> some cases <clears throat> excuse me that I really believe in, and I worked really really hard on. Um And they're both – um they're, one is um – I'll just tell you about them quickly because I could talk about them forever. But one <laughs> is a Voting Rights Act case. And what happened is – and we're representing Chicanos por la casa and Common Cause and Valle de Sol and the Southwest Voter Education Project and a bunch of public interest groups. What happened is that Kansas and Arizona passed proof-of-citizenship laws – which basically combined anti-immigrant sentiment and voter fraud fears. And it requires that all voters who want to register either have to provide a birth certificate or a passport at the time they register. And many U.S. citizens of color or the elderly and the poor lack passports. So why would they have one? Or how to obtain their original birth certificates. Um... And even if they have them, how many U.S. citizens walk around with either their birth certificate or their passport when they're at the DMV during or at the mall during voter registration drives? So, um, it's part of this effort, which is, as you know, in the red states, and I'm sorry to reveal some politics here, but in the red <laughs> states, you know, there's part of an effort to keep, um, minorities, people of color, um, and all sorts of other people from voting. And this is huge. Um, So in the district court, they held that the Kansas and Arizona laws were legal. And we went up to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, who reversed the decision and said, no, they're, they're not legal. And these proof of citizenship laws are not legal. And now the case—the case was appealed to the Supreme Court, and I think they've denied cert. So we're done. We we won. Oh, and then the other one is ongoing, and this is real. This is um, President Obama's executive action on immigration, and we're re- we're working with the Mexican American Legal Defense Fund, and our clients are three Jane Does: Jane Doe number one, two, and three. Because we can't use their names because they're illegal immigrants, and if they if we use their names in the lawsuit, they will be deported and the court has agreed that their names can be submitted under seal and um, here's the deal and i'm I'm not preaching I'll just say it really really fast. there are eleven point two million illegal immigrants in the u s and we only have resources to to deport half a million a year so the president prioritized deportation so that the first people deported are convicted felons drug smugglers coyotes etc and then he issued guidelines saying that he'd give deferred action status to low priority illegal immigrants who are parents of u.s. citizens and this deferred action gives them no pathway to citizenship nothing it just means for three years they can stay, and they don't, and they don't have to live in fear of being deported. Um, and 27 states, led by Texas, have filed a lawsuit to halt the enforcement of the president's guidance on this. And um, so that uh, the, the district court agreed with the with the 27 states and stopped it. Um, and we just had a four hour appeals argument in the, before the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans, and there was a huge demonstration outside by illegal alien immigrants and the policemen and homeland security were everywhere and were waiting for the results on that. But I think um I mean there some of these some of these women have not only ties to the community and their church and their family, but some of these women have grown up US citizen children and babies. One has a mother who you know who she's caring for with Alzheimer's. I don't you know, I don't know exactly how they think this is going to work, but I'd rather have the convicted felons Shipped out than these people, um, so I'm doing that, and then I also do um, Holocaust survivor reparations claims against Germany, and that that can break your heart every time. But
0: well, I think that know. the things you're doing matter because those things implement and touch real people.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you know, as long as I've got this legal ability, why don't I use it? Why don't I use that to give back? um in a way that i can and you know i mean these are the briefings in these two big cases the voters rights and the executive action have been you know we're filing you know huge briefs all the time everyone's jumped in every you know every state every senator everyone's on some side of this case so <laughs> it's been uh, it's been exciting, but it's also really important.
0: Well, Linda, I am so glad that you have been a guest today on Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do, because you're cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it was my pleasure. I had a wonderful time. I think I talked too much. Well, I will tell you, I think... I think
0: this is the longest episode we've ever had in 105 oh, no! episodes of the show. <laughs> However, when you put a professional speaker and a professional litigator together with microphones, the odds were we were going to run long.
1: Oh, my God. Okay. Well, it's. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. I love listening to your show.
0: No, this has been great. And if somebody listened and they just have to know more about The Meanest Woman Alive, which, by the way, you might be mean in the courtroom or when you're prepping your clients, but you're a delightful podcast guest.
1: <laughs> Thank you. My first one. I survived my first <laughs>
0: You, you survived your first podcast and, and you did a great job. But if somebody said, I got to know more about this lady, where, where do they find you? Um, they
1: can Google Linda Smith DLA Piper or they can just Google DLA Piper and then put my name in or they can look at my list. LinkedIn profile, as long as they understand that that's not how I'm getting into my business.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thank you so much for sharing with the audience on the show. And for those of you who tuned in and listened, I know this one went a little long, but I know nobody clicked away because this was a delightful, delightful show. We're going to be back in a couple of days with another interview with somebody just as cool as Linda. But in the meantime, I want you all to go out there and have a great day. Thank you for being part of the Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do podcast. Without your participation and listening to these conversations, There is no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter at at tom.singer. This podcast was produced in part by Podfly.net. Podfly, passion for great sounding podcasts.
1: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit C-SuiteRadio.com.